The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux, Chapter 12. The Girls Talk About Stephen. The girls conferred, late into the night, under the covers, the phone cords snaking out from their mounds like the curly tails of large, blanketed pigs. "'That's dumb,' whispered Alice. "'I know you didn't like what he said, Sarah, but you said he had no friends and asked if he cried about it. "'But that's different.' "'How?' "'That's about him, not his family.' "'Sure, okay, family's a little different. "'But still, I mean, if we had to ask ourselves who was good and who was bad, you know, everyone, I mean. "'Okay, what about the, she's gotten so fat, girls?' Sarah giggled. "'The, oh, my God, I have to tell you my New York story, girls.' They imitated the conversations of their ex-friends. "'Oh, my God, my parents are so anal, they say, I'll call you in sixteen minutes. Oh, I tried to give you a look, but you just didn't see it. And then she shot me down, like, entirely. I mean, it was funny at the time, but later, guys, it's not even that bad.' And Liz got so mad, she freaked out. She's like, "'It's like, sorry.' Guys, I know all the secrets. I knew about Vaseline, the Vaseline thing for the eye makeup before anyone else, and I'm like the most non-makeup person in the world. I don't spend much time on my face. I just wash it at night. Family dinners. My stepbrother and I cannot sit still. We had something with chopsticks, and we were making chopstick houses, and my mom like freaked out. No, no, wait. Let me finish. Shut up. They're the weirdest people in the whole world. If you came to my cottage and you showered, you'd lose my respect forever. They giggled, snorting breathlessly, afraid of waking the parental units. "'Wait, quite, Alice. Air!' She stuck her head out of the blanket, sucked deep, then burrowed back in, curling into a fetal position. "'It's not that they're mean,' whispered Sarah, more seriously. "'But it's like just talk. Everyone wants to get a word, and no one wants to be left out. Everyone has an opinion. I used to hate missing Starbucks after school. You're not there. You're so slagged. But you always had some place to go. I was just home. You know, I'm not going to say that I didn't like it. It's like... J-Lo going, no, my butt is too big. It was fun, but tiring, you know? This is so much better. Yeah, said Sarah. Me air. There was a short pause, then the crinkly rumble of an adjusted phone. So, what did you think of him? Stephen? Fierce little puppy. Nice, though. You? Cute, but you got to like teeth. Alice paused. I was thinking about what he said, you know, about happiness at dinner. Me too, whispered Sarah nervously. What did you get? I was watching everyone, said Alice slowly. My dad is all wired about Ian and Mom and running out of bands. My mom's always tapping her feet and saying we need more money. She always gets her way. Everything turns around. It's like, okay, here's a cell phone. Now call me every fifteen minutes. Do you think she's happy? Sarah paused. I really, really don't like talking about this stuff. Yeah, me neither. There was another pause. But... How do you think he does it? Stephen? There's got to be something in him or on his mom or dad that... She felt a sudden chill even in her airless cave. Okay, said Alice carefully. It's late. Let's not freak each other out. I don't think she's happy. I'm at Susan's house. Her mom's tidying up and her dad just goes up and puts his arms around her and kisses her like all over the back of her neck. Alice laughed. Ooh, sexy. But it wasn't. I know what you mean, but it was just friendly, happy. I've seen my parents kiss like that maybe five times my whole life. <laughs> parents kiss? asked Alice, only half joking. My dad slapped my mom's behind once. She turned on a sinister voice. Once. I liked seeing Susan's dad kissing her mom. It wasn't creepy, you know? Huh. 
I don't like seeing my dad with my mom. I wonder if she likes it, murmured Alice. Okay, we're not talking about that, said Sarah. My dad's like this energizer bunny, you know, just in your face and giddy and talking all the time. I don't think that's happy. My dad isn't happy, said Sarah. I never really thought of it, you know, until Stephen said, You know who's really unhappy? Brother Ian. He's all moping and moody and always fighting with my mom. It's like the only reason he opens his mouth is to bug her. Drives me completely mad. Shh, is Sarah. Yeah, not a good time for that talk. They both came up for air then. I want to ask him what he does about his dad. Stephen, yeah? Alice paused. Well, if Stephen's dad's unhappy, can't he do something? Chapter 13 Gordon Gordon Marrow was not ugly, but he was very poorly groomed. It is a sad but true fact that boys brought up by single mothers are rarely dressed for sexual success. Perhaps their mothers feel that their own sexuality really messed up their own lives and want to keep said temptation far from their sons. Or it may be a hatred of absent fathers avenged on the sons' possibilities of attracting a mate. Eh, either way, the profusion of bowl-cut hairdos, petroleum-based pants, thin t-shirts with little holes where the labels used to be, or dates on them more than six years old, jeans with no pockets on the asses, or, God forbid, stitched purple saturns, does not bode well for the continuation of the bloodline. It is like a depressing descent. Two parents, one parent, no parent. Shorn of the tribal markers of success, these boys often adopt a rather dispirited anti-materialism, scorning those who pay exorbitant prices for jeans or sneakers. The practical fact that goodwill cast-offs keep the cold away is not lost on them. The fact that they also keep the girls away is. No matter how intelligent these boys are, the dual nature of clothing, warmth and adornment, seems completely beyond their grasp. Clothes exist to keep us warm. All else is vanity. It's the natural attitude of unloved souls, breaking free of conventional gravity and riding a helium updraft to the life of the mind. Their antibiological approach, sadly, blinds them to the fact that they would not exist at all if their fathers had dressed the way they do. Gordon's future seemed completely preordained. No dating, vivid, random, too intense sexual attractions that frightened him more than motivated him, a slow strangling of sexual desire, reading comics and playing Warhammer-type board games well into his thirties, an inability to move away from his mother, an apartment filled with old newspapers, plastic chairs, hamburger helper, and dust bunnies. But it was not to be. Gordon broke from this quiet tribe of natural bachelors and dry librarians in a way he did not expect at all. When Gordon was fourteen, a cousin, Alistair, came to stay from England. Alistair was a bright, brown-haired, lanky youth of sixteen. The day of his arrival, Alistair stepped off the plane, and his eyes widened at the sight of Gordon. Oh, the poor boy was standing next to his mother in the fenced-off waiting area, where, it seems, entire ethnic clans come to meet their members. Alistair particularly enjoyed the sight of old, miniature Greek women all dressed in black. He had a theory, in fact, that black holes were just a natural end-product of the feminine Greek habit of getting smaller and darker as they aged. When Alistair first saw him at the airport, Gordon was wearing the following. 
a pair of thick, wide, tan corduroys, a tight blue polyester top zipped up to the neck, a wild bowl cut like an oily blonde fern. Hair oil? Alistair could never quite confirm this or bring himself to believe it. In a glance, he also ascertained that Gordon was not wearing any of the following. Uh, natural fibers, anything which combated acne, matching socks, deodorant. Alistair, raised by an efficient mother and four bossy, dressy sisters, was schooled in the importance of appearance early and well. Being English, he was also allowed far more fop-room than North Americans could stomach. What was dashing in the UK was sadly nothing but gay in the colonies. His heart broke seeing Gordon standing beside his mother, and an odd image came to him, that of a hamster storing her young in her cheeks in a time of danger. In the taxi, Alistair made up his mind. He'll never date as he is. Helping him would be like contributing twice as many children to our gene pool. He had gone through this once or twice before, so when they settled into their beds at night, Alistair called over. Gord, how old are you? A pause. Fourteen. Alistair grinned in the dark. Christ, you must be masturbating like a stressed zoo monkey. What? Ever try your non-dominant hand? It's like a foreign woman. There was silence. Base biology occasionally needs a cattle prod to wake up. Alistair smiled in the dark. In my young career, I have tried the following masturbation devices. My hand, my mouth, the only limber enough men, though, are dancers who can get blown waiting for the bus. A glove, well, several gloves, really. I prefer felt, as in, I felt myself up. An empty pill container of my grandmother's, a watermelon in the oven, 3.50-15 minutes, then you really need either an apple corer or a lot of patience. A pillow, one that goes without saying. The gap between my mattress and the box spring, Christ, I don't think they could ever separate them now. A rolled-up girly magazine, paper cuts, my God. What else? How old are you now? Sixteen. What, still as much? Of course! Why are we even put in school from thirteen to seventeen? I don't even remember my dick when I was a boy. Who cares? Just a pea weapon. Then you have this this thing to manage, not just drain like a freaking pregnant cow, but constantly shift and move and extract and undo. I swear to God, you hit thirteen, they should substitute testicular management for social studies. Do you sit on them often? Often? Gordon giggled. They're like two more ass cheeks. There are times when I would give my left arm all my foreign conquests for ten seconds of unbuckle and liberate. Ugh. Girls can fold their arms to adjust their tits. We can't do a damn thing without looking like Uncle Spanky Fingers. You ever get any dimples? Huh? Dick pimples. You mean on, on, on my private spots? Alistair smiled. Yeah, it's tough to whack off sometimes, placing your fingers just so to avoid them. I've, 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 I've had a few, and, and, and in my pubic hair. It happens. So, are there any girls you're into? Gordon smiled in relief. Yeah, sure, tons. Only those with a pulse, right? Unless it's a warm day. Alistair laughed. Ooh, the boy is fast, she cried. So tell me. There's one, but she's such a queen. I'll never... Oh, I'm completely doomed. But she brought me some shark jaws. Slight pause. Excuse me? I'm, I'm really into sharks. She offered to get me some shark jaws when she went to Florida. Alistair chortled. <laughs> She brought you the teeth of a predator? Christ, you colonists are primitive. I can almost reach almost all my arm through it. Yeah, that's the hole you should be going for. So who initiated? She did. Did money change hands? I gave her five dollars. It was windy. 
Any conversation? Not really. Hmm. Then what? Gordon sighed. Then I asked her out. I see. Tell me. Well, she has the same initials. Our lockers are two apart. She brought me these shock jaws. Mum thought I had a shot. Sure, that's objective. So she's next to me one day, and I've been practicing my deep voice all morning. Alistair nodded on his pillow. Sure, the deep voice. God with a throat cold. It's very sexy. But I lost it asking her out. I, I, I wobbled. Gordon imitated the preteen goggle of bass and falsetto. Shelley, I said, would you like to go swimming on Friday? There was a pause. In the dark, Alistair covered his face with his hands. Swimming? He groaned. No, there's a good reason for it. I'm a great diver. Uh-huh. I wanted to bring her somewhere where she could see I was good at something. Sure, I, I understand that. So, so after I say, do you want to come swimming Friday, she says... Oh, I can't bear it. She says, with who? Alistair writhed on his bed. Oh, God, oh, God. Mayday, mayday, we've lost engines two and four. Well, I'm a little cheesed at this point. Sure, you know you're going down. Oh, I hate that time between losing power and hitting the ground. Alistair shuddered. All oh, that screaming. So I say, with me. You should have said, with me and Sting. Yeah, I'd love to be seen in a Speedo next to him. At least you get to see her in her Speedo before he whisked her away on his tantric carpet. So then what? So she says, she's busy. Oh, engines one and three down, but who cares at this point, because now you get slow motion sickness. What? Slow motion sickness, you know, you have to get away, but your legs are stuck in quicksand. I would rather die a quick death like a cobra. This is more like a very lazy boa constrictor. It's like the walk back from the great weighing. Let me guess. You know, at a dance, you go over no man's land to the female lineup, and you try to find that perfect balance, a girl attractive enough that your friends won't make fun of you for dancing with her, but not so attractive that she'd never dance with you. <gasps> because if you get the shun, stuttered Gordon, you have to walk back. You can't ask for backup. And if you walk back... <gasps> Then you have to walk over again. Oh, groaned Gordon. Let's not talk about that. Alistair smiled. So you got away from this girl? Yeah, and I've been um, feeling terrible ever since, said Gordon, his voice catching. Terrible? Why? This isn't so funny. I really wanted to go out with her. Of course you did. I, I understand that. But you're all wrong right now. What? Look, you're an okay-looking kid, but it's like you've been dressed by all the devils of celibacy. Who does your hair? NASA? Mom. Well, that's no good. Do you choose your own clothes? Sometimes, but we're not rich. You don't have to be rich. Listen, sleep now. Tomorrow we do the makeover. The following afternoon, Alistair took Gordon over to an Italian hairstylist, a place with caustic receptionists in tight pants and genial stylists like alpha males in a harem. There was no small degree of consternation over Gordon's bowl cut, and three men came over, clucking like a pride of lions over a wounded cub. The cut finally decided on was called the stinglet, in that it attempted to reproduce Sting's hair on a smaller scale. Dyes, trims, and stylings were applied, and at the end of it, the three men stood around Gordon's chair, going into great detail about the best way to buy and apply gel. They even shaved him for free. Alistair paid them, but they would not charge full price, claiming that they had never had more fun with a customer. They seemed quite moved by the metamorphosis. 
The fact that the pretty receptionist did not recognize Gordon on his way out should have prepared him for what was to come, but it didn't. After the hairdressers, Alisher took Gordon to Rockwell. Rockwell was right downtown, young and Dundas, at the hub of all things happening. Gordon had passed it by many times, but it had as much relevance to him as a synagogue to an atheist. It was a jeans store three stories high with bright fluorescent lights, sexy sales girls, and gaggles of smooth-cheeked girls holding halter tops up to their chests. Gordon began sweating going in there. It felt wrong, but oh so right. Not one soul in there was an intellectual. None of them wanted to work their way through the classics or line up for hours to get a book signed or to learn an ancient language. But they were hot in the way that only girls who don't analyze can be, well, when they're young, anyway. The fashion world for young men was at this time a police state in that the Synchronicity album had come out and wearing bright rags and hanging from scaffolds over garbage was about the best a young man could do. Alistair had a great eye for the kinds of shirts and jeans with eye-poking zigzag patterns and enough zippers to qualify as lightweight medieval armor. Again, Alistair paid for a lot of the clothing but refused to let Gordon wear any of it home until he had been, quote, hosed off. The next stop was a pharmacy. Gordon had been there before, of course, picking up cigarettes for his mother's and buying enormous colored pillows of cheap shampoo but there were several aisles down which he did not venture. The standard ones, of course, the feminine products, the weird little grocery section, the old person section, condom rack, the makeup and perfume counters. But Alistair took him down the aisles of men's care products, and there he beheld great wonders. They left the pharmacy with deodorant, shaving cream, aftershave balm, hair and skin lotions, gel, acne cream, round styling brushes, and much more. "'Take back the bathroom cabinet!' was Alistair's rallying cry. Gordon slept poorly that night. He was entranced, afraid, unbearably excited, like a gladiator about to step into the light and part the waves of the crowd's roar. He rose in the morning, showered, and then he and Alistair endured his mother's discontent as they took an hour to prepare him. She was not wildly pleased at his transformation, fussing at the cast and shooting resentful glances at Alistair. Gordon walked to school, finally free of his deadly itching. For about a year he had writhed under an anthill of little itchings, able only to wear corduroys, and spending a good third of his time in school trying not to scratch himself. Alistair had pinpointed the problem, dry skin, and solved it by suggesting fistfuls of moisturizer. So Gordon was not only made over in appearance, he had a different relationship to his own flesh. Random erections were still a problem, of course, and would be for years, but at least he was no longer encased in termites. No one paid any attention to him as he came into the school, and this was quite odd. He sat through his classes in great comfort, but curious and surprised that he was not greeted. In gym class, just before lunch, he came out of the shower, and another boy glanced at him, then did a classic double-take. Gordon? Yeah? Jesus Christ, man, we all thought you were the new kid. What the hell happened? He blushed. I got a haircut. Yeah, no kidding. Where'd you get these clothes? Gordon panicked. I, I can't say Rockwell. I'm supposed to be smart. Um, downtown. Well, you are one happening son of a bitch. You're like one of those, you know, before and after photos. There were two girls Gordon liked, Andrea and Marjorie, and they were both in his German class. 
They were beautiful. Andrea, in particular, had a fashion magazine perfection, which soared far above the fleshy lust of teenage attraction. It was only with great effort that sweaty sex could be imagined. To Gordon's mind, at least, his fantasies involved feeling unbearably proud to be with her at a gallery opening, and the limits of his erotic imagination faltered at the edge of, perhaps, feeding her an exquisite caviar appetizer when no one was looking. Now, being an intellectual in the making, Gordon had no idea that a good part of the soul is moulded by the flesh, and that the heart can be changed from the outside in. Alistair was right. Gordon was a handsome boy, and the great makeover brought it out. Girls smiled at him, giggling as he passed, and he took to sucking in his cheeks and stomach slightly, and forever flexing his biceps slightly as he walked. So Gordon was elevated from skulker to hunk in the space of a single day, and in the fashion of obscure jungle drumming the news travelled far and wide through the feminine tribe. Andrea and Marjorie were heard to be fighting over him, and Gordon became, verbally at least, very confident with girls. He had been flailing in a void for so long that his extremities hurt striking at his sudden purchase. He was still jittery in romantic situations, but he found that he had a knack for flirting, and after a few truly abortive starts, that he had rhythm and he could dance. Gordon's Cinderella moment was to have a great effect in his life. Gordon was destined to have a truly great idea. And while the source of great ideas remains a mystery, it is probably true that Gordon's idea had something to do with how he found his way to the center of things simply by changing his exterior. Chapter 14 Justin and Entertainment Entertainment is a staple of the cynical set who love to go ten-pin bowling and make home recordings of country and western songs and have parties with themes like 70s one-hit wonder bands or famous TV sitcom sidekicks or dinner parties called Taste Like Chicken, where all the dishes, chicken being banned, must follow that rule. They love nothing more than to hear that an obscure 60s game show host has been arrested in some compromising situation. They wish they could rent videos of the gong show or get the Bay City Rollers to reunite for an irony tour and laugh that one of the lads was caught molesting children. They love scorning rich boys with eyebrow rings. Yeah, man, I'm rebelling against the system which pays my parents a quarter mil a year. To truly qualify as entertainment, an activity must have three or more of the following characteristics. 1. Uneducated people must take it seriously. 2. It must involve funny clothing, or that those who take it seriously wear funny clothing. 3. It must be impossible to meet anyone your own age there. 4. No fashionable drinks. 5. It must be cheap. 6. And dated. 7. Or dying out. 8. And it must be anti-intellectual. Al was a music producer, and his son Ian was very much into entertainment to the point where Al found him raiding the back of his closet for flared pants and suit jackets with lapels wide enough that with a good updraft they could serve as an adequate hang glider. Ian's group of friends were pretty, bitchy, and pursued affairs with each other with a grim lack of purpose, avoiding attachments, considering them pure sentimentality. They never spoke of morals or love or truth or beauty. If they didn't like an argument, they would say, I just can't buy it. 
as if belief were a mindless surrender to effective advertising. They decorated their rooms with B-movie posters and lava lamps and record sleeves from disco albums. They went out of their way to procure eight-track players. They dared each other with indifference. They loved the catcher in the rye, then disparaged their own attachment, saying, We all wanted to be Holden Caulfield, until we realized we all wanted to be Holden Caulfield. Ian was not the founder of the group, but joined it quite early. The leader, the most caustic acid test, was Dave's son and Sarah's brother, Justin Bugle. Justin had first opened their eyes to the empty, bottomless pleasures of entertainment. Entertainment was a staple of their social life, and they had pursued it for many a moon, but still felt that they had further to go. The evening of southern trucking songs from the 1950s was close, but still... One evening, Ian asked several of his friends to come by. He termed it Japanese Elvis Impersonator Night, and they all came in sequins and black wigs and spoke in outrageous accents. A Todd, Gerald, Chris, and the token female, Janine. Janine was a former tomboy on the verge of outpacing her fading testosterone. She liked being the center of attention. They sat in the basement apartment, lounging on lozenge-felt couches which looked as if they had been culled from the space station in 2001. None of them knew why they were there. They were all sixteen. Ian got the festivities started, standing before a large black object which was draped in cloth. My friends, he began, we have searched many moons for the original cheese, and I believe I have discovered it. Todd smiled. Christy, and the original cheese is a myth. Do you really think so? Asked Ian, his eyes gleaming. I disagree. I think there is such a thing as pure cheese. An idealist of cheese, cried Gerald. The ideal cheese is aerosol cheese, said Janine. Who was it, said Chris, who first looked at cheese and said, You know what's really missing from this food group? Propellants. Come on, sighed Justin. What's under the cloth? My friends, cried Ian, pulling the cloth aside. Behold. Justin leaned forward. Karaoke, he murmured, clearly disappointed. Home, karaoke, cried Janine. Bonus points, we must agree. Chris smiled. Not bad, but it's not the same without drunken Japanese businessmen singing, Love me tender, love me too. Oh, my dears, said Ian, shaking his head sadly. Do you think I would call a mere karaoke machine the heart and soul of all things cheesy? Would bowling be so without the shoes, the IPA beers, the fat guys with their names stitched on their backs, the rummy wheezing behind the counter, the late Jurassic fries? No. My friends, the essence of cheese is defined by an intersection of all that is cringeworthy. These, my friends, are the instructions for this interstellar device. He held up a pamphlet and read, for Asians who want to learn the music of the home world, Karachi is proud to represent the Merry Sounds home karaoke machine. Learn the song as its heirs to your friends' families. No, wait, wait. How Japanese is sung from a bouncing ball of correct speech. Amaze your friends. Make family. Todd clapped his hands together. <laughs> Make family. Make family, panted Janine in a parody of sexual desire. I want to borrow that microphone. She squeezed her hands between her thighs, moaning, "'Maybe all four. "'Can I be the first bouncing ball of correct speech?' asked Gerald eagerly. "'This,' said Ian, holding up a thick, coil-bound book, 
has phonetic Japanese lyrics designed for non-Japanese speakers. He grinned. Now no true Japanese act is complete without backup singers. He held up his microphones. Who wants? Todd, Chris, and Gerald all leapt up and took them. Ian held the last one up. Justin, this one is for you. Why me? Because you do the best Elvis, suspicious mind. All right, said Justin, taking the microphone without getting up. But if I'm going to do this, I want a real challenge. He paused for a moment, licking his lips, then nodded. I will sing Japanese in the manner of a rural Kansas schoolgirl who has been possessed by Ed McMahon. And is drunk, cried Gerald. She's from rural Kansas, said Justin. What's the stretch? She's trying to sober up, cried Janine. No, the DTs, shouted Todd. Yeah, yeah, that's okay, said Justin. He straightened and turned to Ian. Hit it. The tinkly music filled the air, and the gruesome strains of a possessed Kansas schoolgirl, with the others on backup, filled the air. Upstairs, Al was trying to read the paper. At times he might have found the demented din funny, but not tonight. Hysterical, broken laughter rose, and he scowled. After a few songs, Janine poked her finger at the book. Ooh, the Japanese version of My Heart Does Go On. Is that really worth ridiculing? asked Justin. In Japanese it is. Todd wiped his forehead. Have you ever noticed how much it sounds like my hot dogs go on? Or, said Chris, adopting a French-Canadian accent, I wish my grandfather husband would let me eat something. You really should thump your chest when you sing that, said Ian. I swear to God she's got a boob coming out of her back by now, said Janine. All right, said Justin. I will do my heart does go on in the style of Celine Dion. How about the Celine Dion quintuplets? asked Gerald. No, you don't get it, said Justin. You can only parody a parody by doing it straight. Come on, we were all in choir. Let's do this mother right. Hit it. The strains of the song came up, and Justin opened his mouth. And then something quite remarkable happened. Upstairs, Al sat bolt upright. His heart hammered painfully. The personal ads fell from his hands. In his whole life... He had heard that sound only once before, when he came across youth in Asia at an underage club. It was the sweetest sound that could inhabit his ears. It was not the sound of music, or art, or harmony. It was the sweet sound of money. Downstairs, Janine found herself staring at Justin. Are my panties wet? He's not even a man yet. Ian stepped back from the machine, the hair on the back of his neck rising. Well, that's odd. I believe I have an erection. Al started rushing down the stairs, then slowed, afraid to break the spell. Justin's head was thrown back, the song inhabiting his whole body. Every vibrato, every tone, every deep spell of yearning was pouring out of him like a heart casting magic that could never be refilled. Jesus Christ, whispered Al. This will be my next year, at least. When the song ended, there was a hush in the room. Justin shook himself like a wet dog and flopped on a sofa. Oh, hey, Mr. Music, he said, glancing up at Al. What the fuck did you do? whispered Janine, touching her thighs. I'm going to have to buy them a new sofa. What are you talking about? Al sat down. His hands were trembling. You can really sing, Justin. 
Yeah, well. No, really, man, said Ian. I'm sporting a rocket here. Shut up. Al swallowed, glancing around. That's you with bad sound in my basement. What are you saying, Melody Maker? Yeah, you'd never go for it. You're too... probably. What, is no one going to say it? demanded Janine. Say what? asked Justin. Cut a fucking demo, Menudo. You're shit white. Justin snorted. What? No, she's right, said Al. You have an incredible sound. You should hear him after lentils, said Todd. And you guys, too. The harmonies are incredible. What are you talking about, asked Chris. Just the product of Our Lady of Perpetual Rehearsals. Al blinked. This is so fucking ridiculous. I have acts come through my office. The fathers will sleep with me to get their kids noticed. And then you lot show up in my freaking basement, and I have no idea how to entice you. Entice me? asked Justin. To do what? To lead a boy band, said Al. There was a long pause. A boy band, repeated Justin slowly. Holy shit, said Ian. Better hurry, Peach Fuzz, said Janine. My God, whispered Chris. The others leaned forward. Justin blinked, then a slow smile spread across his face. Now that, my friends, is original cheese. <laughs>